Hello, and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 46. We are going to be back in the United States covering a female serial killer this episode. We'll stay in the early to mid-1900s, and today's episode is on the giggling granny, Nanny Doss. Nancy Nanny Doss Hazel, a serial killer, was also known as the Giggling Granny, Giggling Nanny, Jolly Black Widow, Lonely Hearts Murderer, Lady Bluebird, and as one newspaper put it, the self-made widow. She confessed to killing four people when she was arrested in 1955 for the death of one of her husbands, but insisted she had never hurt her, quote, blood kin. However, a number of law enforcement officials in Alabama and elsewhere believe she is likely to have used rat poison or arsenic to kill up to 12 people, including her mother, sister, mother-in-law, grandson, granddaughter, and two of her own children. Women serial killers are more rare than men. Even more uncommon is a grandma serial killer, but there's only ever been one grandma serial killer who laughed or giggled while discussing her murders, and that would be the giggling granny. So who was Nanny Doss? Well, Nanny was one of Jim Hazel and Louisa, or Lou Holder Hazel's, five children. She was born in 1905 in the small town of Blue Mountain, Calhoun County, which is about halfway between Anniston and Jacksonville. Nanny experienced a tough and difficult upbringing. Her father was intimidating and demanding, probably abusive, and he may or may not have even been Nanny's biological father. He would frequently keep Nanny and the other kids out of school for extended periods of time so they could help around the house or on the family farm. However, Nanny and her three sisters thought their mother was loving and kind to them. A pivotal moment in Nanny's life happened when she was around seven years old. A train she was riding in abruptly slowed down and she hit her head on the metal railway seat in front of her. She would later blame this accident and potential brain damage for the destructive behavior she would later exhibit. When Nanny was a teenager, she had fantasies about having a perfect life with her future husband. And as a young woman, she spent a lot of her free time reading romance magazines, specifically the Lonely Hearts sections. She might have utilized romance magazines as a form of escapism from her abusive father, while her mother stayed silent and failed to intervene. Now, her father James would restrict Nanny's interaction with other young people as she entered her teen years by forbidding her from going to any social events, including church-related ones. But according to family lore, she would sneak out at night to meet young men despite her father's wishes. Nanny would start working at the Linen Thread Company in neighboring Anniston in 1921 when she was 16 years old. And it's here that she'll first meet Charles, Charlie Braggs. Charlie courted Nanny and won her father's approval. Nanny would move in with Charlie and his mother, whose disposition unfortunately matched her own father's. They would get married and within a few months give birth to their first child. 
they would have four children in fast succession. The couple had four daughters, Gertrude in 1922, Zelmer in 1923, Florine in 1924, and Melvina in 1926. According to alabamaheritage.com, Charlie would say that Nanny was a pretty girl and lots of fun. Their marriage would start off pretty well, but after a few years, she started going off. Now, early on in their marriage, both partners would start drinking inappropriately, going on binges, and also have extramarital affairs as a way to get away from their marriage troubles. By 1927, the marriage will have completely crumbled, and it was during this time that Nanny's violent tendencies appeared to have begun. Two of her children would inexplicably die after eating breakfast that year, and their deaths were put down to food poisoning. But Charlie wasn't convinced, despite local doctors' claims that the deaths were accidental. Evidently, he had closely observed something wrong in Nanny's eyes. He quickly fled, taking their oldest daughter, Melvina, with him. But he would abandon and leave behind the newborn infant, Florine. In 1928, Nanny and Charlie would divorce. And later in 1928, Charlie would return with Melvina and a new love interest. Nanny moved back in with her parents with her daughters and continued to work at a nearby cotton mill to support her family. Charlie will be the only one of Nanny's husbands to survive. When Nanny was looking for her second husband, she experimented with a new strategy that would eventually become her go-to method. She sent out appeals through the Lonely Hearts Club, and with poems in a picture, a Jacksonville resident, Frank Harrelson, would respond to Nanny's advertisement. In 1929, they got married, but things quickly got difficult due to Harrelson's alcoholism and volatile temper. And much to her dismay, Nanny would learn that he'd also served time in jail for felony assault. Frank was anything but a gentleman. According to Geringer for Crime Library, the two surviving daughters, Melvina and Florine, grew up and got married by the early 1940s. And in 1943, Melvina gave birth to a son named Robert. And in February of 1945, she would experience another labor. The petite woman found this pregnancy difficult, and she requested her mother come see her in the hospital. Mosey, Melvina's husband, went to get Nanny, and like a good mother, Nanny stayed on duty all night soothing her daughter. When Melvina gave birth to a beautiful baby girl, Nanny rejoiced alongside her daughter and son-in-law, but the baby would pass away only an hour later. Now, the information surrounding this death is hazy at best. Melvina was in her bed, semi-conscious from the anesthetic while Mosey slept in a chair in the hospital room. Melvina will claim that she looked over to see Nanny holding her daughter, but she would witness something that she was never able to distinguish if it was a nightmare or reality. She thought she saw Nanny sticking the baby's delicate head with a hat pin. Tragically, Robert, Melvina's son, would also die under Nanny's care only six months later. After a fight with Mosey, 
Melvina would leave Robert with Nanny and go to stay with her father, Charlie. It's unknown how young Robert died. Nanny appeared heartbroken and said she had no idea what happened. The physicians would diagnose his death as asphyxia from unknown causes. But Nanny would then receive a $500 insurance payout on a policy she had taken out on the boy only a few months earlier. As in a lot of cases we've covered on historical true crime, mysterious deaths coupled with insurance payments should always be suspicious. Now, Nanny's 16-year marriage with Frank would end abruptly one night in 1945 when he returned home intoxicated from a night of fun celebrating with his buddies who had served in World War II. According to Nanny's testimony, he coerced her into having sex, and the next day, she added rat poison to one of Frank's secret moonshine jars. On September 15, 1945, he died. However, it was believed that he had food poisoning or another mysterious illness at the time. Arlie Lanning of Lexington, North Carolina, who had put an ad in the neighborhood Lonely Hearts column, would become Nanny's next victim. Once more, adding rat poison to one of Arlie's meals proved to be the best solution to get out of the marriage. Due to his extensive drinking and the local flu virus at the time, his cause of death was given as heart failure. Nanny had seemed to be the ideal spouse to Lexington neighbors. Therefore, the death happened under less than suspicious circumstances, and an autopsy wasn't even done. Nanny would pack up her television and leave town after learning that her late husband had left their home to his sister. The house was reduced to cinders and ash in only a matter of hours. Nanny would move to a nearby town to stay with Arlie's mother. Arlie's insurance payment for the fire was paid out and by his will belonged to his sister. But Nanny would cash that check illegally, pack up her television once more and again leave town. Oh, and Arlie's mother would also at the same time unexpectedly pass away. Nanny would move in with her sister Dovey after Arlie's death in 1950, but Dovey would pass away shortly after Nanny's arrival. Samuel Doss and Richard Morton would become her next victims and husbands. Both people connected with Nanny through Lonely Hearts messaging. Nanny was still a romantic at heart, despite her three unsuccessful marriage attempts. She paid a $15 charge to join a male dating service called the Diamond Circle Club in the early 1950s, and it was through this service that she would meet Richard Morton, her fourth husband. In Kansas's Emporia, she would wed Morton in 1952. He soon started spending extended amounts of time in town with another woman. Nanny would spend the majority of her time with her mother, who had moved in with them in January 1953, following the passing of Nanny's father. Her mother, Lou, would complain of terrible stomach aches and pass away only a few days after arriving. And after consuming a thermos of arsenic-laced coffee, Morton too would die, only three months later. Nanny then left to be with her new suitor, Samuel Doss, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The two would be married in June 1953. Even if Nanny wasn't 
Even if Samuel wasn't violent or drunk, Nanny still found issues with him. He prohibited non-educational magazines and television, which Nanny took issue with. And before he added her to his bank account and obtained two life insurance policies with her named as the beneficiary, Nanny briefly left him. She first attempted to murder him with an arsenic-laced prune cake, and he would spend a month recovering in the hospital. It was determined that a severe illness of the digestive tract was the cause of the illness. But on October 5th, after his release, Nanny resumed her previous activities, angry at the time that she had spent already trying to kill him. She woke him up for dinner. She had carefully prepared for his homecoming. After giving him only one afternoon's rest in his own oversized chair, she utilized her tried and true arsenic and coffee technique. And Samuel would pass away shortly after. But Nanny made a mistake in her haste to get rid of her most recent and by no means best husband. She had been in too much of a hurry this time. Despite her usual skill, the physician who had examined Samuel just the day before was shocked to learn that his patient had passed away. This, he claimed, was absurd. He asked for an autopsy, and the evidence that would determine Nanny's fate was found in the stomach of her fifth and final spouse. Samuel Doss had not passed away from natural causes. They discovered enough arsenic in his intestines and stomach to kill a team of horses, in addition to the leftovers of a roast meal. Nanny was detained by Oklahoma authorities on murder suspicions, but the grandmotherly woman was too engrossed in a romantic hearts magazine for detectives to coax a confession out of her. Nanny grinned and flirted with police like a little girl when they finally got her attention by seizing her magazine. Nanny did admit to poisoning her ex-husband after spending hours in the interrogation room. Why? Well, it's simple. He forbade her from turning on a fan during a sweltering summer night or watching her favorite television program. She admitted to killing all three of her previous husbands after getting police to swear that if they gave her back her magazine, she would confess. Following her confession, Detective Page and other Tulsa detectives dispersed to Kansas, North Carolina, and Alabama to assist in the exhumations of Nanny's husbands, her mother, her sister Dovey, her nephew Robert, and her mother-in-law, Arlie's mother. Each of the deceased spouses and her mother's arsenic levels were high. The other family members' bodies did not contain any signs of a hazardous chemical, but they all appear to have died of asphyxia. There's a strong inclination that they had been suffocated as they slept. Authorities believe that Nanny killed up to 12 people in all, the majority of whom were blood relatives. Well, Nanny attributed her violent behavior to her brain injury. And because she would chuckle or laugh each time she told the tale of how she had murdered her late husband's, Journalists gave her the nickname, The Giggling Granny. Her trial date in the criminal court of Tulsa, Oklahoma, was set for June 2nd, 1955, after a panel of four psychiatrists determined that she was mentally sane. 
But on May 17th, she made up her mind to forgo the trial. And because her attorneys were at a loss for what else to suggest, she pleaded guilty. She was sentenced to life in prison. It's claimed that Nanny spent the remainder of her days in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary still dreaming of eternal love. After serving two years in jail, it looks like Nanny began to regret receiving a life sentence and wish she had been executed instead. Despite this, she remained upbeat and frequently cracked jokes about her situation. Nanny claimed that the only job she was allowed to have was in laundry during a Tulsa interview on her time spent in the jail, saying that her offers to work in the kitchen were respectfully rejected. And on June 12th, and and on June 2nd, 1965, the 10th anniversary, the 10th anniversary of her imprisonment, Nanny passed away from leukemia and was interred in McAllister, Oklahoma's Oak Hill Memorial Park. And that brings us to the end of another episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a case suggestion of something you'd like to hear covered in an upcoming episode, you can reach us on Instagram at historical true crime pod or by email at historical true crime pod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.